Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheet's pharma regulatory podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is February 3rd, 2023. It's a dark time with the Super Bowl still more than a week away and no other football to obsess about. But the FDA and pharma industry were generous and gave us plenty to discuss while we await the Eagles-Chiefs clash. The story we broke this week was that Wilson Bryan, who is head of Sieber's Office of Tissues and Advanced Therapies, soon will be, which soon will be renamed the Office of Therapeutic Products, has decided to retire. Bryan plans to leave in March, although the exact date has not been set yet. His future plans also are not firm, Bryan told us. The move not only was a surprise, but also is a huge loss for the FDA. In addition to renaming the office, OTAD also is undergoing a massive reorganization that is intended to help handle the increasing cell and gene therapy workload. Most thought Brian would become director of the new OTP super office, even as the government began looking for candidates for the position last fall. OTAD also lost its deputy director, Rachel Rachel Anatole, as well as its associate director for regulatory management, Kimberly Benton, in December. And Raj Raj Puri, who ran OTAT's Division of Cellular and Gene Therapies for more than 19 years, left in March 2022. So now Sieber is forced to navigate the reorganization with likely an acting OTAT director and will be forced to find a new permanent director in in an environment where recruitment already is difficult, especially in the cell and gene therapy world. So for you all, I'm I'm curious what you think kind of the impact of this move is going to have on Sieber and, you know, on OTAT in general. I mean, it doesn't seem like a good time to lose your director as you're going through a big organization, right? Reorganization, I should say. I guess, though, you you had like an interesting point in your story about John Jenkins sort of leaving at a similar time for the Office of New Drugs. And I was wondering if part of it is like maybe sometimes you want to use like a reorganization to like get in sort of new, um, you know, new people or new ways of thinking. So maybe they maybe there's a potential like this could be seen as like a positive. Um, I mean, to me, the initial thought, though, was, you know, as you're sort of elevating an office and getting a lot more work and, you know, it's becoming very prominent, it's hard to lose those people that have, you know, have that kind of years of history with the agency, particularly, again, because we know it's not exactly easy for FDA to replace these people. Yeah, the the institutional knowledge is, you know, going out the door is is the big the big thing. Um just because, you know, especially with cell and gene therapy being kind of this emerging area, it's it becomes that much harder to kind of, you know, for the FDA to figure out how they want to uh, you know, handle a lot of these applications because they're never seeing them before. So, um and it, I you know I I just when you mentioned John Jenkins leaving as OND director I I I had I hadn't really thought about it all that much but it, that that does make sense that you know kind of you leave as the reorg is going in place and then you can kind of reset the culture and you don't have these kind of you know you don't have you can kind of you know it, it's not like a clean break so to speak but it's kind of a way to start you know kind of wipe the slate clean and start fresh with the new you know, the, uh, you know, the new director at the top kind of helping, you know, having putting things in place how they want to be put in place. But, you know, it, at the same time, you know, you're still going to have an acting person most likely at least start that process or, you know, potentially finish it depending on how long it takes them to find somebody. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it, and 
you know, Wilson Bryan's not leaving until, you know, March. So he's going to be kind of have his hands on this process as it goes, as it begins too. So it's, it, it's, it's a weird kind of, it's just kind of an odd situation, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly the, uh, the glass half full, uh, uh, glass half empty, uh, um, you know, perspective, uh, dichotomy there that's where kind of you could talk about oh you know they're going to be hiring a, a whole bunch of new people they're going to bring in a whole um bunch of new ideas because they have these new challenges and they're you know, sort of they're kind of uh um refreshing to uh, face them or you could say like oh there's all this institutional knowledge that is uh, <laughs> that is going away and that's certainly true but if they're uh, they're facing through kind of all new uh, um types of products maybe that institutional knowledge isn't uh, as as critical perhaps as uh, um as one might think, not that sort of kind of, I mean, to discourage anyone who's uh, who's left in terms of what they're uh, um, able to do in terms of uh, um, you know, product review and oversight. But, uh, um, you know, I think, uh, um, you know, if you're sort of kind of uh, facing new challenges, I think sort of kind of uh, new people might be the best way to uh, to approach it there. Yeah, it's a, that's an interesting thought, too. I mean, the, the other thing to consider here is that um, when the Office of Vaccines Research and Review lost its director and deputy director within a few weeks of each other back in 2021, I believe it was, excuse me, Peter Marks, um, the, C, the director of CBER, became took over as the acting director and, and was the acting director of that office for about a year. Um, and you know, anyone who listens to this podcast or wasn't living under a, in a cave knows that the Office of Vaccines Research and Review was pretty important in 2021 for that year. Um, so, you know, so you wonder if, you know, going forward, if, you know, the gene therapy office is going to be increasing its kind of importance here. You know, does he does Peter Marks have the time to if he decides to make himself you know, be the acting director, does he have the time to do it? Does he, you know, is he able to do it in addition to all his other duties? And how does that affect how things work? It's, you know, there's another kind of issue that they may have to deal with, you know, especially with it. You know, CBER, people don't realize CBER is a lot smaller than CEDAR is in budget and in personnel. So it's not like they have lots of people on the bench that can step up and handle, you know, a lot, a lot of these roles. So. Yeah, I mean that uh, that template is certainly something we've seen in uh, um, Cedar as uh, um, as well as uh, um, what might be happening in uh, Cedar uh, here. You know, the uh, uh, you know Janet Woodcock has sort of uh, uh, stepped in with sort of kind of new uh, new offices or offices going through transition. Uh, you know, she was the uh, um, acting director of uh, OGD for a hot uh, um, a hot minutes. Sort of kind of uh, um, when they were uh, going through some resource uh, um, challenges, and uh, you know her uh, um, her efforts on manufacturing has sort of kind of uh, you know been uh, um, been reflected in her acting uh, um, director status of uh, um, of those new offices in uh, um, in Cedar. So uh, it's uh, um, you know it's really something you see sort of from a uh, um, a center director who sort of kind of uh, you know uh, you know using that uh, kind of status as sort of kind of to uh, make sure that their vision is uh, um, is carried out in. Uh, um, in that way, so it's a uh, interesting to see sort of kind of what uh, what happens with gene therapy. Yeah, it's uh you know something we'll be watching certainly as as it goes forward. Um, by the way, before we move on, I know we know that Dr. Brian listens to us, so shout out to him, <laughs> and best of luck in your next step. Yes, we'll have to we'll have to have a, a segment on him <laughs> once, once he has his, his next act. So uh, looking, yeah, looking forward to that. So. I think it's my first shout out on the podcast too, which is kind of cool. <laughs> Next up, we're going to discuss the long-anticipated launch of Humira Biosimilars. 
Sarah, you wrote an interesting piece this week about how AbbVie still may have an advantage against the theoretically cheaper competition that's coming. Yeah, so um, Humira is one of the first um, biosimilars really to have um, to be in this Part D, you know, Medicare Part D outpatient sort of pharmacy space, um, which creates different sort of payer prescribing dynamics um, that impacts uptake. And um, one thing we know that has sort of happened in, you know, the last few years that's been kind of a focus of everyone's attention is how rebates um, impact which products are on the formulary or where they're placed on formularies. And sometimes we've seen sort of these perverse incentives where a higher price product actually gets a favorable position because of the rebate they're giving to the PBM. And so one thing I noticed um, is you started to see these like sort of announcements trickling out like from um, some of the, you know, the payers. And so we're saying, yeah, you know, we're going to cover the Umera biosimilars, but they're all going to be at the same place as, you know, Umera brand. And then I saw AbbVie actually sort of was um, talking about this recently, basically said for 90% of their access for their, they've basically kept Umera at parity in 90% of the case in the U.S. this year. So that means basically patients are going to be paying the same out of pocket, whether someone prescribes them the brand or the biosimilar. Um, you know, there might be, it's hard to know exactly because if someone has a deductible, initially they could be hit a little differently or if it's a coinsurance versus a copay. But um, so then my question is, okay, well, in a case where you have to actually sort of have your doctor, right, like write you a prescription for a different product, um, you know, unlike generic drugs where, you know, it's the auto substitution thing is sort of widespread with biosimilars if it's not in interchangeable. And even here, there's some other cases like, what is your motivation to switch, right? Like, I think like people who've been around the, the biosimilar space kind of know, you know, patients really shouldn't be concerned about, you know, taking a different product, but we sort of know people are going to have that like initial like reluctance, like, is this really the same as my drug? Um, so why would anybody go through any, you know, any of that stress or even take the time or energy to switch if they're not saving any money? Um, and so, you know, I talked to a bunch of people about this dynamic and, you know, so at first right now we just had Amgen's product that just launched and actually um, to try and address some of this like rebate gaming, they kind of are pricing one version of their drug higher so they can give a bigger rebate to see if that helps. And then another version um, lower and seeing kind of which one maybe what might help them with uptake. But you know, Amgen is just going to be the first one out there this summer. We should have a number of other versions, another number of other biosimilar competitors out there, including some interchangeable options. So some people think, you know, that's when really the pressure comes on and maybe, um, you know, some dynamics start to switch. Maybe even if it's not that this summer, maybe six months, a year from then, you might see some, you know, some of the biosimilar brands being willing to kind of play ball a bit more and the payers play ball, strike deals to kind of lower price in a way that gets them, you know, that preferred formulary access and really motivates patients to switch. Um, but people are definitely worried and worried that, um, you know, AbbVie will kind of maintain dominance. And, you know, one thing people were talking about is like, even if 
to get to maintain this dominance, Abby is having to give the PBMs higher rebates than they were before. So there is some savings, right, going to the health system, um, you know, that then gets bloated back into lower premiums and stuff. That's not necessarily a bad outcome. It doesn't necessarily create an environment where you have the next bio biologic, you know, that's going to come off patent and so forth. Like what is going to motivate these brands to, you know, recreate the biosimilar brands um, to recreate this dynamic in the future if they're not getting any uptake. And I think that's where like I was coming at this and approaching this is not just about like, okay, will AbbVie ever lose its Umer monopoly? But like, what does this situation say for the sustainability or even like the getting this biosimilar pathway off the ground in some ways for this sort of Medicare Part D space? Yeah, I think it's uh, noteworthy that the first uh, biosimilar that's uh, that's out there is from uh, Amgen, which is not exactly uh, a company uh, we uh, we associate with uh, cheap drugs. So uh, there's uh, um, perhaps a, a lesson in sort of kind of the 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 need for uh, you know uh, large capital to sort of even do these uh, biosimilar uh, um, development programs. And uh, you know, Sarah, as you're saying, you know, I think the the whole um, uh, business model is, uh, um, you know, something that people are starting to uh, uh, be concerned about, uh, especially around this uh, uh, question about sort of what happens to uh, um, uh, margins if, uh, you know, they're going to compete with a product that's sort of already had its uh, prices lowered uh, because of, uh, you know, Medicare uh, um, uh, price setting that's for kind of uh, part of the IRA and, uh, you know where uh, um, border folks go from here if they can't, uh, you know, get a, uh, um, you know, get a, a goodly number of uh, uh, scripts and, uh, you know, some nice, uh, um, nice revenue from the uh, the largest uh, brand in the world. Uh, you know, are they going to, uh, you know, feel that they can invest in making uh, uh, biosimilars for for smaller products eventually? And uh, um, you know, it's a uh, um, going to be a, a policy challenge if it, if it feels like uh, that uh, um, everyone who's uh, um, Who's, who's gone in here is uh, is feeling like they're uh, um, they're not worth it. The, the next time there's a there's a great uh, um, uh, chart in your uh, your stories for looking at the uh, you know who's going to who's going to uh, launch uh, when and sort of kind of what the status of their product is. So to um, recommend everyone for kind of uh, um, you know for the scroll through that and look at that uh, that, that great visual. But uh, um, you know in terms of sort of kind of what it means for the uh, the sector going forward, I think we're going to have to wait a uh, probably a year or two to sort of see where where it all shakes out and sort of kind of whether people have, uh, thought it was worth the uh, worth the investment to make a, a Humira biosimilar. Okay, I got a couple of questions here. It <laughs> is are are pay, is this even going to hit patients at all? I mean, you were saying that like you know they're the you know the discounts are going to kind of flow through the PBMs and so forth, but is it going to be like you know, if I get a generic fill at the pharmacy, I, I don't even care mo more or less who made it because we're all confident the generics are the same. And if, you know, we're confident the biosimilars to Humira are the same, the FDA has said they are, you know, essentially the same. I mean, if the doctor says prescribes a biosimilar and not Humira, I mean, are, is the patient even going to notice? I mean, in terms of savings. <laughs> Right. Uh, or, I mean that, or I mean, you know, whatever. I mean, if you you know you have it in your hand, I mean, are you are you even gonna are you even gonna look? Are you gonna notice if you're paying the same thing as you would pay for Humira? Does it? I mean, are you even gonna notice? I mean, I haven't looked into like what does the packaging look like, right, for all of these yeah. biosimilars. But I guess that would be 
one thing, right? You imagine there's going to be slight differences. I know usually like FDA, right? They have some sort of like requirements, right? You sort of have to be some of the packaging and this is a drug, right? You're going to be actually like injecting yourself, you know? So like there are some requirements that it has to kind of the whole process of doing that also has to be similar enough. It's not just like the medication, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I would imagine there's going to be some clues to them, right? That they're they're not getting a brand product on some of the packaging and labeling and they would notice it. I mean, even sometimes I think like you notice, even if you get like a different generic, sometimes you can just tell by, you know, the right. I mean, I probably pay attention more to these things than other people. So maybe I'm not a good judge of this, but I, I think people will, will know if their doctor writes it for a biosimilar, um, they'll have some sense of that. Or if they get one of the auto substitutable products, again, um, the other thing that I, I, you know, I plan to look into more. And if any podcast listeners want to email and talk to me about this, I'm all ears is that um, what I was told is that because you know, this is sort of a specialty pharmaceutical. It often goes through these PBM specialty pharmacies and so forth. So you're not going to get as much of, um, and a lot of the interchangeable rules under the state laws don't um, apply to some of these mail order scenarios. So that'll even make like that getting that auto substitution practice, practice um, working at this point. So, you know, again, you're, you might have to have a doctor that's really sort of in tune to this and thinking about what to prescribe. And the other thing, if you, uh, this is another plug for the, the, you know, the graphic we did with um, Nancy, our, um, you know, designer who helped make this visually interesting is like, there is not just like one version of Umera, right? There's like, there's citrate free, there's high concentration, low concentration, there's different needle sizes. Um, you know, there's, so like, it's not just like, there's gonna be like six biosimilars of the same drug. It's a little bit more complicated than that. So like, you're, you know, you, your doctor also has to like, make sure like the particular version you're taking has a biosimilar, right? And that's going to, I think that also adds to like the complications and everything that needs to happen, both in terms of like how challenging it is just to like change prescribing habits, but then also to get the sort of economic competition you want. Because I think as we've all seen with generics, you sometimes need like a number of players in the field to get there. And even though it does seem like there's a lot of Umeras, it's like not all of the Umera biosimilars are created equal in that way. Well, yeah, we see, you see it with complex generics and it's still a problem. You know, like if you want, you know, an auto injector, I mean, if, I think there is an auto injector version of Humira, I think, I, I can't remember. But Right, um, so most of them come in like if, a pen versus a, right, more yeah. of a, like a syringe option. Yeah, but those devices are, they, they're all patented and have, you know, you can't just, make up you can't just do the same device so you know if it if you want to compete in that space you have to have a device that's unique but has the same instructions to work the same essentially the same with minimal difference and not a lot of extra training and so forth so that you know like you're saying that makes it tougher to kind of get people to move over to you know to the biosimilar because if you're using you know like i said the the example is an auto injector if you're using an auto injector do you want to go back to manual injections i i don't know i bet there would be a lot of patients who would say no so you know it, it's a yeah it's it's a complicated um complicated problem um 
The other question I had was, and tell and correct me if I'm wrong in the number here, but I counted, I think, 13 biosimilars that are going to launch this year, or maybe that's just biosimilars with the different concentrations. Right. Um, so, well, I think there are, there are some, if you look on the chart, um, there are some we know are you know definitely launching, and that's where I think some people, everybody like has thrown out different numbers here. Um, so like, we have Amgen's Amgevita, and then we have one, two, three, four, five, six that are actually seven, I think, that are definitely going to launch in July. And then another um, one that's definitely supposed to be launching this fall. But then you have, right, like you have four, I think, or so other ones that are pending approval. And I think there's, depends, you know, there's, I think, a reasonable assumption some of those get approved. So we should have, you know, there's somewhere in the range of at least seven, but maybe closer to like a dozen this year. Does, did any of the people you talked to discuss whether they think the market can support 12 biosimilars plus a brand that is doing really well at not going away? Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's like those dynamics because, you know, one of the um, people I talked to from the um, chief medical officer, Cardinal Health was talking about, right. So if you, if you get to this point where the biosimilars realize like they're not getting enough uptake and then they start playing the game of like, okay, well, let's lower our price, right? We've seen this happen in the generic injectable space, right? Like at some point there's like these trade-offs of cost and volume, right? And mm -hmm. then as the cost gets lower, only so many players can stay in, right? Because if someone else is taking all the volume and the price goes to, so right, does that sort of push some amount of players out potentially would be interesting to see, right? If you get to more of that like race to the bottom with pricing. The other point he made with Humira, um, again, I don't know how unique this would be to Humira then if you're thinking about kind of biosimilar space future going forward was like, okay, Humira takes in like some ridiculous amount of money in the US. I think it's like 17 billion or something a year, right? So if you, if there are 10 biosimilars, and they can each just get a billion dollars a year, maybe depending on, you know, the financials of how much they spent developing it and so forth, like that's not so bad, right? <laughs> um, so maybe maybe that's okay. Maybe that's all they need here to, you know, keep playing in the Umera space. Um, so I think those are kind of some of the things we'll have to see how it all shakes out. Yeah, it's an interesting, I mean, th that whole, and maybe this is kind of the, you know, becomes kind of the the trend setting kind of product for how that's going to, that whole process will work because um, it, there, there were warnings, you know, biosimilar executives were warning that they didn't want to see these products become commoditized, essentially, kind of like a lot of small molecule generics are, are now, like you said, with the, you know, the injectables where they're, you know, essentially pennies now and you barely, you know, you barely cover the cost of making them with the price now. And they said that, you know, by a similar investment won't go forward if that's what it turns into. So, um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see kind of how, how this whole shakes out. It's definitely kind of a, I don't want to say the Super Bowl of, of similar launches, but it's one of, it's, it's up there in terms of importance. Finally, we're going to discuss the long awaited return of in-person meetings at the FDA. Like many of you, I've been wondering when the FDA was going to emerge from its pandemic posture and again allow sponsors and the public to return to White Oak for meetings and public events. 
We got our answer this week when the agency announced that type A biosimilar product development type 1 and type X meetings could be scheduled to be partially in person beginning February 13th. These meetings generally are for stall development programs across you know, new drugs, biosimilars, and um, OTC monographs, which would be expected to benefit the most from the in-person interaction. The FDA is not going to go back on the pre-temp, go back to the pre-pandemic practice of crowding a conference room full of people to discuss whatever questions the sponsor has. Only those with speaking responsibilities will be allowed in the room this time. The rest will be allowed to log in via Zoom or another teleconferencing uh, platform. FDA is upgrading its conference rooms with new noise-canceling boom-forming mics and face-to-face conversation tracking video cameras and other equipment to ensure those attending virtually have a similar experience to those that are there in person. More meeting types are expected to be to have the hybrid option as more conference rooms are upgraded. Right now, only three or four are expected to be available, um, at least in the near future, as that work continues. Obviously, some stakeholders stakeholders are excited about this. Many have been complaining that they've been asking for in-person meetings, but were denied, even though the agency has been able to support them for a while now. Unfortunately, there's still no plan to return to in-person advisory committees yet, though. So as reporters, we generally don't get to have meetings with FDA staff in their conference rooms all that much. But are you looking forward to going back to White Oak at some point? (laughs) Not exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll stick up for in-person, even though I'm perhaps the most uh, work-from-home uh, um, person person on the uh, on this podcast. But uh, um, you know, I think there is uh, no substitute for that kind of uh, the energy of a uh, of a meeting where you're kind of seeing people and you're kind of able to have the uh, the side conversation and just sort of kind of uh, you know see their face and sort of kind of have the uh, the chit chat uh, beforehand. Uh, you know, I, I will uh, offer a little bit of game theory for. Uh, um, any sponsor eager to have a uh, um, in-person meeting that only kicks in next week. The uh, the 13th, I believe, is for when you can start requesting. So if you uh, if you if you really want an in-person meeting, don't ask for one yet. Wait wait until then, and uh, um, you know it's not too long away. But that's for kind of when it uh, when it actually uh, kicks in. So I think it's a it's a natural progression. It is interesting how you know FDA is much more you know serious about this sort of hybrid model than uh, you know perhaps some other. Uh, um, you know, perhaps the people that are uh, that are meeting uh, they're meeting with or on the industry side. So, uh, you know, I think uh, um, it may be more of an adjustment for uh, FDA to figure out kind of how to make that uh, that work on uh, on there, and then uh, then those that are eager to uh, um, to meet uh, with them will sort of be uh, to uh, to come uh, to come back to uh, to White Oak. They might be uh, um, more comfortable coming back to White Oak than the actual people that work in White Oak. So, uh, um, we'll have to. Uh, We'll have to see how it shakes uh, shakes out, and I, I do think that uh, um, FDA is kind of behind the curve on uh, not allowing for advisory committees and not even sort of kind of having a uh, you know a theoretical uh, uh, timetable for uh, um, for getting those back uh, in person. Uh, but uh, um, uh, you know uh, um, uh, that that little agitation doesn't seem to have uh, um, peaked yet. Uh, we'll, we'll have to see sort of kind of what uh, what prompts that change. I, I wonder what. Uh, what might uh, cause them to sort of go back to in-person for uh, for advisory committees? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I talked to a, a, a person at the the, um, the deputy director of operations in OND who's in charge of kind of this this project, and and you know, it sounds like that the impetus for going back to the hybrid meetings for sponsor meetings was the fact that they're now implementing this hybrid 
hybrid work policy for the staff in general to where you know that they're kind of instead of kind of having this guy like this kind of like every, everyone goes back once every two weeks to the office and there's nobody there and you know the only person you see is a security guard when you walk in I mean, they're they're trying to get away from, you know kind of get to a place where people are actually in the office again if they want but still allowing the remote kind of component and um you know, if you're allowed to do that, of course, if you work in a lab or something in there, you have to be in the lab. But um, so th this is kind of an extension of that policy going into place. And I'm wondering if the kind of the advisory committee thing kind of happens, you know, as they get become a little more comfortable with kind of how that works, because interesting, it's just kind of an interesting dynamic because they, they've already had advisory committee and other meetings, the McKenna withdrawal hearing, where all the FDA staff wanted to be in the same room for that hearing, which was virtual. And yeah, I thought that happened. all the yeah, and like there have been advisory committee meetings where all the people from the sponsor sat in the same room for that meeting, which was virtual. So yeah, they they're all kind of like clustered in these like meetings with like you know in these rooms with you know even though they they never meet, they're like ships passing in the night or something. It's it's very kind of. I, I don't know what I don't know what what you call it. It's kind of an interesting way this has kind of worked out. But um, yeah, I, I, I'm thinking as they get more comfortable with kind of the in person, you know, the hybrid situation, then maybe we'll move to bigger events. Um, yeah, we we just got word today that there's one, there's going to be the um, the annual generic drugs uh, research priorities meeting. It's going to be in person with a virtual option in May. So, um, you know, at White Oak. So, um, you know. We'll be there for that. We'll see how many people show up for that um, as well. Another interesting thing about this is that um, there are sponsors who don't want to go back to in-person meetings. They they just don't think it's necessary anymore now that the video conferencing has kind of been worked out. Um, I was told that you know you can you could get all your questions answered over Zoom, and you don't you know all that you know the whole you know, I need to be across the table from somebody to, you know, kind of persuade them to my position is, you know, you could argue whether or not that's, that's the case or that that works. So it'll be, I'll, I'll be curious to see, you know, if, if they, if they ever give any kind of numbers, you know, how many actual in, hybrid meetings or in per, you know, in-person requests they get and how many they actually are able to do, um, you know, once it's kind of, once they kind of get used to this and everybody gets kind of, back into the swing of it. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.